Would you pray with me? Lord, we also rejoice in your power today. The power that raised Christ from the dead. You say that same power is at work within us, God. And as your people, Lord, we gather here today Lord, to hear from you. To rejoice in you, Lord. To to delight in you. To encourage one another and be encouraged. Lord, as we um, now enter into this time of the preaching of your word, God, would you direct us and help us Lord, to apprehend, to understand your word, to honor it, to delight in it, God, and to be changed by it. So, Lord, now we submit this time to you, and we worship you because of your grace to us that you have poured out in Jesus Christ. And it's in his name that we pray. Amen. Our text today is Psalm 27, and I will start with the reading of that psalm, and one more exercise in calisthenics, we'll ask you to stand once more with us as we read this. The Lord is my light and my salvation, whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. One thing have I asked of the Lord that will I seek after, that I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life, to gaze upon the beauty of the Lord and to inquire in His temple. For He will hide me in His shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of His tent. He will lift me high upon a rock. And now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in His tent sacrifices with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. Hear, O Lord, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. Hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. Give me not up to the will of my adversaries, for false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong, and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. You may be seated. There are truths that instill confidence in the heart of a believer. There are times when a believer may feel that the world is in disarray, crashing down around them. But then a fellow Christian or a pastor or a song 
or in their time of reading and meditation on God's Word, they remember or maybe they're reminded of some truth of God, a truth they'd forgotten. And that truth, once it's understood by them and remembered, it opens the drain on the reservoir of fear in their hearts. And the fear and the anxiety subsides and maybe vanishes completely. There are many verses like this in, in my life. Maybe there's some like this for you as well. Maybe it's in Romans 8, 28. That glorious passage of the scriptures. Some have called it the best chapter in the best book in the Bible. But a chapter of victory, a chapter of a reminder of the supremacy of God. The, the place of the believer in God's plan. The victory that is that we are destined for. In verse 28, Romans 8, we read, And we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to His purpose. Then in verse 31 and 32, we read, What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare His own Son, but gave Him up for us all, how will He not also with Him graciously give us all things? Do you hear the logic in that verse? That if God gave Jesus Christ as a gift and a sacrifice for His people, what on earth would He hold back from us? He's already given us the greatest gift. There's nothing else to hold back. And then verse 38 and 39, For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus, our Lord. There's many other verses that might do the same thing in your life. And I'm sure many of you have had that experience. You were deeply in despair, but then someone shared with you a verse, or you read in a time of personal Bible study a verse, and it, it lifted the veil of deception that was over your eyes. It reminded you of the truth of God's Word. It reminded you of the reality that exists and not the appearance. It helped you to see through the appearance to the reality and filled you with joy and gave you peace. It gave you faith, again, to trust God. In verse 1 of this psalm, Psalm 27, David says, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? The Lord, Yahweh, the personal name of God, was David's light. God illuminated David's path. He exposed things that would otherwise be hidden. When you look in the scriptures, light and darkness is one of the most frequently used analogies. And that imagery is unmistakable. First, thing that God created was what? He said, let there be light. Right? That was the first of God's creative acts in the universe. Let there be light. Think of the terror of a world without light. That would be frightening. The Apostle John uses the analogy of light and darkness frequently in his writings, both in his gospel and also in his letters. In John chapter 1, we read, In Him, being Jesus, was life. And the life was the light of men. 
The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. And then in 1 John chapter 1, verse, verse, starting in verse 5, John writes, God is light, and in Him is no darkness at all. If we say we have fellowship with Him, while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light, as He is in the light, we have fellowship with one another, and the blood of Jesus His Son cleanses us from all sin. The Lord was David's light, but the Lord was also David's salvation. This word for salvation is translated in the Old Testament as salvation or safety. Clearly it can mean physical safety. And in the immediate context, it seems that that's the sense in which David is using it. God had saved David in battle. And David trusted that it was the Lord who had done that. And because David recognized the salvation that God had given to him, and that God is his light, he can have absolute confidence and fearlessness in the Lord. Not in himself, but in God. This is not a psalm about self-confidence or self-assurance. This is a psalm about fearlessness because of God. It's about courage because God Almighty is with David and gave him salvation in the midst of his enemies. Whom shall I fear, he says. Light, salvation, and then a stronghold. The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Stronghold is a refuge, protection and defense, a fortress. The Lord protects David in times of trouble, providing him with refuge. And he echoes the question he asked previously. He says it again. First, whom shall I fear? And now, of whom shall I be afraid? Of course, this is a rhetorical question, right? It's a question that's asked where the answer is so obvious that you don't need to give an answer. You know these kinds of questions. Pastors use them all the time, right? Preachers ask questions that they don't expect to be answered. I, I had a funny time I asked what I thought was a rhetorical question and got an answer in a church. Asked if anyone had left the house without looking in the mirror. And this guy in the back raised his hand. And I, I think he was being honest. But rhetorical questions don't need to be answered because they're so obvious, right? Of whom shall I be afraid? I'll let you answer. What's the answer? No one. No one. If God is David's light, his salvation, and his stronghold, whom shall he fear? No one. Of whom shall he be afraid? Again, no one. David recognizes that God is the absolute, undefeatable ally. You can have 15 billion enemies lined up against you with guns drawn, fingers on the trigger. But if God is your ally in that situation, and you know it, you are not afraid. You're not afraid. But we have to remember the reality of the analogy that I talked about light and darkness, right? In John 3, verse 19 and 20, we read, And this is the judgment, 
The light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light, because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light, and does not come into the light, lest his works should be exposed. And that reality leads us to the next verse. When evildoers assail me to eat up my flesh, my adversaries and foes, it is they who stumble and fall. David has enemies. He has opposition. And he describes them as cannibals. Not only do these people oppose me, but they have a craving for evil to destroy David. And this description exposes an intensity of hatred for David that's just barbaric. And the thing is that David is in covenant with God. But these enemies don't respect that. Their intent is to see David consumed. It's very vivid imagery that he uses, is it not? People that hate you so much that they want to eat your flesh. And these enemies come against David, but they can't achieve victory. They can't achieve victory. Why? Because David has put his hope in God. The Lord is my light and my salvation. And in opposing David, these enemies oppose God. Verse 3, Though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I will be confident. He may be outnumbered, but the Lord of creation, the Lord of victory, the Lord of salvation and strength is with him. Whom shall I fear? Of whom shall I be afraid? In 2 Kings 6, we read a story of the, king of, Assyria, of the king of Syria hunting for Elisha, the prophet of God during the reign of King Jehoram. I'll turn there and read this passage. 2 Kings chapter 6, starting in verse 8. Once when the king of Syria was warring against Israel, he took counsel with his servants, saying, At such and such a place shall be my camp. But the man of God sent word to the king of Israel, Beware that you do not pass this place, for the Syrians are going down there. And the king of Israel sent to the place about which the man of God told him. Thus he used to warn him, so that he saved himself there more than once or twice. And the mind of the king of Syria was greatly troubled because of this thing. And he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me who is of us? who of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elisha, the prophet who is in Israel, tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedroom. And he said, Go and see where he is, that I may send and seize him. It was told him, Behold, he is in Dothan. So he sent there horses and chariots and a great army, and they came by night and surrounded the city. When the servant of the man of God rose early in the morning and went out, behold, an army with horses and chariots was all around the city. And the servant said, Alas, my master, what shall we do? He said, Do not be afraid, 
For those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And when the Syrians came down against him, Elisha prayed to the Lord and said, Please strike this people with blindness. So he struck them with blindness in accordance with the prayer of Elisha. And Elisha said to them, This is not the way, and this is not the city. Follow me, and I will bring you to the man whom you seek. And he led them to Samaria. Of course, this is an astounding story. But what, what did Elisha pray to the Lord for his servant? He prayed, Lord, open his eyes so that he could see. It appeared that there was no hope in that situation. And yet, the reality was that God was going to do something amazing there. David says, though an army encamp against me, my heart shall not fear. Though war arise against me, yet I, shall be, I will be confident. Now, it would be very easy and very wrong for us to make a direct parallel between David and us as far as what we can expect safety to look like for us. David was anointed king of the nation of Israel. And God promised him that his family, his family line would be an eternal dynasty. That was a Davidic covenant is what it's referred to um, by Bible teachers and students. And it reached its ultimate fulfillment in the person of the Lord Jesus Christ, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. But God's purpose in preserving David's life and establishing his kingdom and God's promise to do so meant that David could be confident that he would be victorious in battle and that his dynasty would be firmly established. David was first anointed king as a youth, if you remember, by Samuel in the midst of his brothers, the youngest of his brothers, in 1 Samuel 16. And the Spirit of God rushed on him from that point. God gave him victory over Goliath, protected him from Saul's murderous pursuits on his life, and gave him victory over his enemies time and time again. God's promise to David and his purpose for David gave David the ability to declare victory before the battle came. Because David knew God would fulfill his promise. But do we have a promise from God of military victory over our enemies? No, we don't. We don't have that promise. No, David got old and died and was buried just as we all die and will turn to dust. Did the apostles have a promise of the kind of safety that David knew he would enjoy? No. All of them were persecuted. And church history tells us that they were virtually all martyred. Have God's promises to Afghan Christians failed because they were left shockingly and suddenly exposed to the enemies of God who seek to kill them? Reports are that many have been executed. simply for having a Bible app on their phones. That at some point the Taliban was walking around taking people's phones 
There was a Bible app. Boom. That was it. Did God's promises to them fail? Did God's promises to His own Son, our Lord Jesus, fail? Jesus was crucified, afflicted with the worst sufferings, a true victim, completely innocent and pure, the only human being ever to live and not give in to the temptations of sin. He never had even an impure thought. Not one, can you imagine? A life so pure that no flicker of a thought of sin even came into his mind. And he died the most horrific death imaginable. Beaten almost to death. Mocked and ridiculed. Stripped naked, nailed through his hands and feet and lifted up to die in agony. And worst of all, to take upon himself the wrath of God against the sins that we committed. He drank the cup of God's wrath to the very bottom. And he exhausted it. Every ounce of wrath that God's people would have experienced in hell was poured out on Christ in the cross. Did God's promises to Christ fail? No. In Acts 14, 21 and 22, we read this. When they had preached the gospel to that city and had made many disciples... They returned to Lystra and to Iconium and to Antioch, strengthening the souls of the disciples, encouraging them to continue in the faith, and saying that through many tribulations we must enter the kingdom of God. We have been promised trouble in this life. And the promises of God to His people correspond to His purposes for them. He destined David for military victory in order to establish his dynasty and bring the Messiah fulfilled in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. His purposes for us are to conform us to the image of Christ, to the image of that Savior. And sometimes that means terrible suffering. But God's promises to us will never fail. In Revelation 2, verse 10, the promise to the church of Smyrna, terribly persecuted. Jesus says to that church, Be faithful unto death, and I will give you the crown of life. God's promises to us have not failed. God's promises to David did not fail. In verse 4, David says, One thing have I asked of the Lord. That will I seek after. That I may dwell in the house of the Lord all the days of my life. To gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. And to inquire in his temple. David had a heart for God. His highest dream was to be with God. Promised an eternal dynasty. What was the one thing that he says he asked God for. To be with God. To see God. To commune with God. What was David's greatest desire? To be with God. 
David was enamored with God. There were times when David was on the run from his enemies. And during Saul's reign, David went through an extended period of exile. You remember this, wandering in the wilderness, sleeping in caves, getting away from Saul, sometimes by the skin of his teeth, hunted by his father-in-law, who had an obsession with destroying David. Perhaps this is the enemy that wanted to consume David, to eat up his flesh. And because of this, David would have been unable to enter the tabernacle, to worship, to offer sacrifice, unable to follow that normal pattern that God had given and prescribed at that time. And that stirred his desire for God even more. Take everything from me, he says. But let me gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. Certainly this doesn't mean the physical things in the temple. But what the worship and what God had prescribed pointed to, the spiritual realities that were there, the physical there pointed toward the heavenly. The sacrificial system was a symbol of the heavenly reality of a God of forgiveness and communion with his people through a mediator, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. And he today is our mediator, priest, and sacrifice. And in a similar way, there's a spiritual reality that we take in the bread and the wine, in participating in the Lord's Supper. We gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In singing songs to our great God, we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. In the preaching of His Word and the fellowship of the saints through His Spirit, we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I will never understand people who say, I love Jesus, but I hate the church. I can't understand that. When when I'm with you, I gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. I wonder for for those that say, I love Christ, but not the church. Do they know any Christians? There's no one more precious to me in this world than all of you. You're, You're a family to me. And when I'm with you, I rejoice. Together we gaze upon the beauty of the Lord. We're doing the most significant thing we can do in worship. And you are the people with whom I do that. We gaze upon the beauty of the Lord together. And there's nothing more exciting to me. And it just grows as I get older. To be with you people, my spiritual family, we'll, we'll be together forever get a foretaste of that in a special way when we come here together as the church. In verse 5 he says, For he will hide me in his shelter in the day of trouble. He will conceal me under the cover of his tent. He will lift me high upon a rock and now my head shall be lifted up above my enemies all around me. And I will offer in his tent sacrifices 
with shouts of joy. I will sing and make melody to the Lord. And God did this for David. He protected him. He guided him. He fulfilled his promises. He concealed him when he was in danger. He put him in safe places. He lifted up his head above his enemies. And David's response to God's faithfulness is as our response to his faithfulness must also be. Praise, thanksgiving, song. David worships his God. Do you trust in the faithfulness of God? Remember what God has done in Christ. That in spite of us being created for the glory of God and rebelling against Him in Adam, and then confirming our status as sinners through our own sins, and being deserving of hell, that in that condition, as enemies, God sent Christ as a sacrifice for sinners like you and me. To die on a sinner's cross, the cross we deserved. To bear the wrath of God against the sin of His people. That God did that of His own initiative, of His own desire, not because of our merit, but in spite of our merit. We deserve the opposite. We deserve condemnation. But God sent Christ who knew no sin to be sin for us, as we read in the Catechism. And then Christ rose from the dead on the third day, having absorbed the wrath of God against His people, who was buried. And according to the promise, He rose on the third day, according to the Scriptures. Defeating death, and being the firstborn from among the dead, which... All of us who know Him will now follow in that path. And if you do not know the faithfulness of God, think of that Savior. Think of God's intent. Think of God's plan. Of what He did. And marvel. And repent. Leave your sin behind. Come to Christ. And bow at His feet the end of Psalm 2 we read kiss the son lest he be angry and you perish in the way you cannot be neutral when it comes to Jesus Christ you must decide to reject him or to embrace him and I plead with you if you do not know him today that you kiss the son that you come to Christ and put your faith in him and bow at his feet Put your faith in the sacrifice that He poured out on Calvary for you. Kiss the Son. Turn from your sin. Embrace Christ and be saved. All of the promises of God to Christ are credited to those who put their faith in Him. That is the great hope, the gift of the Holy Spirit, the hope of eternal life. Come to Christ today. Hear, O Lord, verse 7, when I cry aloud. Be gracious to me and answer me. 
You have said, seek my face. My heart says to you, your face, Lord, do I seek. David shifts now to a plea and a prayer to the Lord in verses 7 through 12. He asks the Lord to continue to hear him and be gracious to him. Keep answering me, God. His confidence was in God. He wasn't filled with an arrogant, entitled mentality. He knew that he needed God. We need God. God had given David a command. He said to him, seek my face. And seeking the face of God is striving to know and obey God. If you seek something, you pursue it. My uh, wife recently had a scare. After 18 years of marriage, her wedding ring went missing. And we turned the house upside down. And I mean that almost literally because every couch, every cushion, we, we ended up with more pens and pencils than we've had in years because they, they're not just under the cushion, but they're like that space underneath the under the cushion. That's where they go. You can find them all there. But we turned the house upside down looking for her ring because it's special to us. Right? It's a symbol of our love and our family. It's, it's an heirloom that we hope to pass down to our children. And we hope we'll pass down to their children. We found the ring, by the way. Uh, but we not only searched the house, she went back to stores she'd been at the day that it went missing. I mean, it was the pursuit was incredible. David pursued the Lord. God told him, seek my face. And David said, I'm going to seek your face. And he did that. Verse 9, hide not your face from me. Turn not your servant away in anger, O you who have been my help. Cast me not off. Forsake me not, O God of my salvation. For my father and my mother have forsaken me, but the Lord will take me in. Teach me your way. O Lord, and lead me on a level path because of my enemies. David recognizes that he is utterly dependent on God. He needs the continued favor of God in order to complete his mission as king. His plea to God is, don't leave me, don't forsake me, teach me your way. David's desire was to know the ways of God. He asks the Lord to lead him in the right way, The level path. There are many paths that could be taken. But David says to God, Lord, take me on the right path. The safe path. The path that will lead me out of the destruction that my enemies have planned for me. And are pursuing. God will never forsake his people. Though everyone else reject us. Parents. Friends the world, the culture, though you're disinherited and renounced by everyone, the Lord will not reject you or renounce any who come to Him in faith. That is a promise, friends. The Lord will not disinherit you. If you are one of His children, He will not forsake you. Take courage. 
Give me not up to the will of my adversaries. For false witnesses have risen against me, and they breathe out violence. Is this prayer inconsistent with the confidence that David expressed earlier in the psalm? I thought David was was safe. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? Now he's praying that God not give him up to his adversaries. Well, no, it's not inconsistent. There are many promises in God's Word that we know are true, and yet we still pray for their fulfillment, right? Their fulfillment is not dependent on our prayers. We know that Christ is coming again to bring salvation to His people, yet we still pray, Come, Lord Jesus. We know that God has commissioned His people to take the gospel of Christ to the ends of the earth, and yet we still obey Jesus' command in Luke 10.2, where He says, And He said to them, The harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Therefore pray earnestly to the Lord of the harvest to send out laborers into His harvest. It's God's instruction to us to pray for those things that He plans to do anyway. And we participate in that. So it's not inconsistent for us to pray for the promises of God to come true. And that's what David does here. Not only does it make us a participant in God's fulfillment of those promises, but it is also a reminder of what those promises are It's an encouragement to us that God will stay true to His Word. And then God does fulfill His promise and we get to rejoice and delight in God's faithfulness to us and to His Word. In verse 13 and 14, David concludes his psalm with this. He says, I believe that I shall look upon the goodness of the Lord in the land of the living. Wait for the Lord. Be strong and let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Finally, David expresses his confidence in the fulfillment of the promises of God. Things look bleak, but God is good. And it's not easy to be patient There are many temptations to despair in a time of waiting. Many temptations to give up, to lose hope that God will fulfill His promises. And as those who, unlike David, unlike David, we can look back on God's faithfulness in accomplishing what He promised to David. Right? God did fulfill His promise. Jesus Christ is King of kings and Lord of lords. He sits on a throne, reigning and ruling. Our Messiah has come. David wouldn't have fully understood how God was going to accomplish his purposes. Remember, David's Bible was much shorter than ours. He couldn't read Paul. But he looked forward in faith on what God was doing. He took courage in God. Much of the Old Testament had not been written. But he believed God. He had to wait and never saw the fulfillment 
in this life, in his life, of what he was hoping for. He didn't experience all of that. But we look back. We see, we read so many more promises and their fulfillments in Scripture. Christ has come and brought salvation. God brought the Messiah. And God has given to David that eternal dynasty fulfilled in his son. But there are promises yet remaining to be fulfilled, are there not? There are things that we look forward to with eager anticipation. Not one of those promises will fail. Imagine the miraculous nature of the incarnation of Christ. Consider that. Marvel at that. Know that if God can do that and promise that and then did it, that there's no chance that God's promises that have yet to be fulfilled have any possibility of failing. 100%. 100%. So as David's response was, and his encouragement to his own heart, was to take courage and wait for the Lord. That also is our response to this. Be strong. Let your heart take courage. Wait for the Lord. Take courage and wait for the Lord. Do not despair. So applying this psalm to us, when we're afraid, when things look bleak, go to the truth of God's Word and remember again God's promises. Preach the truth to yourself. I heard someone once say, no one talks to you more than you do. I'm not going to comment on my own life, but there's a lot of truth in that. Whether it's just up here, in your stream of thought, or what you say to yourself when you're driving down I-35 after a hard day at work when the boss said something you didn't like. Or when you read the news and become fearful. Whatever it is, take courage, wait for the Lord. Preach the truth of God's word to yourself. God's word is steadfast and sure. It cannot fail. Soak in God's promises. Soak in his word. Remember the safety that is yours in God. Even if you lose your life. Remember Jesus' words in John eleven twenty five. 25? I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me will live, even though he dies. The worst they can do is kill us. And at the end of the day, we still win. Why? Because God is faithful to his promises. Jesus says that we can't be really killed. Everyone who has left this life in Christ is alive right now. They're not dead. And one day, 
their bodies are going to rise out of the ground, be transformed, and live forever. This is a parenthesis in between the death of the body and the ultimate renewal of creation. If you're in Christ, you can't really be killed. So take heart. This reality that even if we lose our life, that we will be raised, frees us from the fear of death. It frees us from the fear of death from persecution. It frees us from the fear of death from disease. It frees us from the random terrors that overtake us. I don't know about you. Somebody mentioned this the other day. I think it may have been Brady talking about how sometimes, you know, when he's at home and maybe Trish and Cody are out and he thinks they should be home by now, you know, kind of looking at his watch. And he, you know, I've had that thought. Have they been in a wreck? You know, those are realities. People die in car accidents, you know. And we're not exempt from that possibility. But we don't have to be afraid. Trust God. And transfer, transmit that trust to your children. Tell your children to trust God. And demonstrate that for them. So that they don't have to be overcome with fears. So they know that mom and dad believe that God is faithful. And He is. And then take your request to God. David made his plea to God. You take your request to God, and then you rest in faith, knowing that He hears you and answers according to the kindness that is yours in Christ. We don't know the future completely. But we do know a lot of it. We know the most important part. God's given that to us. And we know that everything God is doing, according to His Word, He is working out for His own glory and for the good of His people. So whom shall I fear? No one. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your many and steadfast, precious promises to us in your word. God, help us to be a fearless people who trust in you at all times. Help us to remind one another of these truths. Make us fearless in Christ. Fill us with faith, with hope, with assurance, Lord. Keep us from despair. Guard our hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God the Father, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be among us. Remain with us always. Amen.